we've developed as a global economy, we've realized that your product is, it's really like, you don't want to limit your, your market, right? It's really ensuring, how can I use this, whatever I'm building to really connect folks? And depending on your mission, if your mission is to connect individuals and ensure that folks are able to achieve whatever goal they want to achieve, whether that's within their country or cross border, it's understanding that you have to really deep dive into various cultures and how they how products resonate with them. How do they interact with technology? How do they interact with each other outside of technology to really deep dive into that to understand the best way to build your product to ensure that it gets adopted worldwide. So in general, it's really just understanding how connected everyone is and how connected the globe is and how the US is it depending on your product, you could have better adoption outside the US than in the US. So it's really making sure that you're able to kind of break out of your bubble to see the global impact your product could have, and then actually taking the time to do that research to see if that's an opportunity you can take to ensure your product gets adopted globally. Welcome to the Data Binge Podcast, a library of discussions with technologists and business leaders focusing on the human relationship with technology. Three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's discussion. As always, hoping this dialogue is finding you in a place of peace, health, and happiness as we all continue to put forth our very, very best efforts at the jumpstart of this fresh year. This month, February of 2021, is a very special month for many different communities. February is officially designated as Black History Month, an annual celebration of achievements by African-Americans and for recognizing their central role in U.S. history. Originally, this special time of year was sponsored by the Association for Study of African American Life and History as the National Negro History Week, chosen in February to coincide with the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. In 1976, President Gerald Ford officially recognized Black History Month, calling upon the American public to seize, quote, the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of Black Americans in every area of endeavor throughout our history, end quote. Since 1976, every American president has followed the February designation of Black History Month and has endorsed a specific theme. And this is pretty interesting, this theme for 2021, Black family, representation, identity, and diversity. You can find more information on the facts of Black History Month via the history.com link in the show notes of this episode, as well as several books that I've read or am reading to carve out space for this month-long celebration. In honor of Black History Month, the content of this podcast through February will focus on Black leadership in technology and will give more attention to voices that are very seldom elevated in our networks and in our communities. Thank you for being a part of this audience and for being a part of a journey that is more than just a conversation. It's an awakening of new thoughts, empathy, and a better understanding of our quickly changing world. A quick update for you. I've just released my seventh newsletter, the Data Binge Refresh, which summarizes my own personal learnings from the conversations shared here on this podcast, as well as some things that bring me energy across the month, from books to meditations to inspirational TED Talks and much more, you can subscribe to the newsletter by navigating to www.thedatabinge.com. So just a really great collection summarizing everything that we're discussing on the podcast. And now for today's discussion. Joseph Acconi is a product manager at LinkedIn and joins this live recording of the Data Binge podcast to discuss how different cultures and communities develop and consume technology. Joseph's first product release as a LinkedIn product manager was highlighted in the Wall Street Journal in July of 2020. The profile name pronunciation feature allows for the opportunity of correct pronunciation of names, a critical component in creating an inclusive workplace. If you haven't seen this capability, it allows you to record a 10-second clip of a LinkedIn member recording their name. You could access it right on your profile from your mobile or from your desktop. A brilliant piece of technology. 
changing a very important part of how we relate and communicate to each other as humans, the correct pronunciation of our very names. Of course, we've all experienced that uncomfortability of having our names mispronounced or mispronouncing someone else's. It's just a terrible feeling. Joseph brings with him a collection of product manager and consulting experiences across some very recognizable businesses, from Lyft, Intel, and NVIDIA, all the way to Ford Motor Company. Joseph's academic achievements include an MBA from the University of California, Berkeley, Haas School of Business, and a master's in electrical and computer engineering from the Georgia Institute of Technology. Joseph was also a fellow of the Management Leadership for Tomorrow's MBA Prep Program, a nonprofit-led fellowship focusing on accelerating the career outcomes of African Americans, Latino Americans, and Native Americans. Being that Joseph and I are both alumni of the MBA prep program, we were connected by our coach, Kendra Crook, who was also a guest on episode 49. If you are interested in the program or would like to find out more about management leadership for tomorrow, you can find links in the show notes of this episode. A really great discussion with Joseph as he walks us through his perspectives on product management all up and how lived and shared experiences can help create closer connections to how different communities and cultures adopt and develop technology. Thank you for listening. And now I bring you Joseph Akoni. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Data Binge podcast, the first live podcast of this very happy new year. And we are welcoming Joseph Akoni, product manager at LinkedIn, to this episode Joseph, what is giving you energy today? The weekend is almost here. <laughs> it's a long weekend. Uh, so I would say that is giving me the most energy right now. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the long weekend. <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, I, I have two very young kids. So the weekday is actually my most calming. I'm actually going to look forward to the weekday this weekend. <laughs> so I'm going to have them all weekend. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm really excited about this discussion. I've been waiting for this for a really long time. I've been following you for a while. So before we get started, I'd love to talk a little bit about how we met. So we have some mutual friends and colleagues and mentors in common. So Kendra Crook, she's a coach for the MBA prep program at Management Leadership for Tomorrow, which is a nonprofit that has a portfolio of of programs that helps African Americans, Latino Americans, and Native Americans get into the top universities and, and organizations in the world. And mm-hmm. she connected with us and wanted us to talk. So I'd love to give a quick shout out to Kendra and the MLT program, the MBA prep program. And also, if I could ask you to talk about your experience in the program. Yeah, uh, honestly, MLT is probably one of the greatest things to ever happen to me, honestly. Uh, I met some great people. I wouldn't be where I am right now without MLT. wouldn't have had a chance to go on to Berkeley. Uh, met some great people that I still keep in touch with. We were basically a family, honestly. And honestly, it was just an amazing experience. Got a chance to you know deep dive into the MBA application process and just get that one-to-one mentorship to really ensure that the you know applications were up to par and that exceeded expectations. You know, I had a chance to meet, you know, tons of folks throughout, you know, different schools who, schools that, you know, I didn't attend, but still making connections there because of MLT. So highly recommend MLT to anybody who's uh, interested in getting an MBA. I also had know some folks who are in the undergraduate programs at MLT, so they seem to love them as well. But yeah, Kendra uh, and the MLT program, you know, definitely want to give props to them for what they're doing and changing the lives of many minorities in this country, and uh, you know, making sure that we're able to succeed in the in our respective fields. I completely second that, and we have a couple folks that are live now. Looks like Kendra is actually watching this live. And one of the special things before we leave this topic is this is how you and I met. Mm. I consider you a successful person in, in, the, in the world of technology. I've done pretty good too uh, here at Microsoft and, and continuing to kind of accelerate. And I owe all my success to MLT. It's, this, it's the opportunities that it afforded us. And it's also these types of opportunities. The fact that I reached out to you, Joseph, exactly. and, and said, hey, I'd love to connect. Let's talk about product management. Let's talk about culture. Let's talk about community technology, and let's do it live on LinkedIn. So I think that's really special. So what are you up to today? What have you been doing since Berkeley, since Haas? And you know, what are you doing at LinkedIn today? 
Yeah, so I am a product manager at LinkedIn, working on the member profile. And so what my team does, we just various sections of the profile, working to improve it to ensure that members can better represent themselves personally and professionally to give them the best economic opportunity that they can attain, you know, using our platform to just improve their lives, right? So that's a, a high level what I do. So worked on various features across the profile. Yeah, so what I love about the team, my team is that we, we just help each other out whenever, you know, work needs to be done. So yeah, it's uh, just working on the member profile to make sure that we can help members best represent themselves, introducing features and, you know, different integrations that we can use to really help our members, you know, get, make, make the best out of their experience on the platform. I really like how you, when we first talked, you said member profile, and that's kind of you, you know, LinkedIn kind of looking at its members. And when I think about LinkedIn, obviously I think about this wonderful platform that I don't think of myself as a member. And I don't even think about how your team is looking at improving the profile for us, but you Mm -hmm. mentioned increasing economic opportunity. And that's a very interesting topic. So why did you join LinkedIn? What was the ignition that got you over to the team? So I actually attended, they had an MBA kind of a, let's say a workshop or a kind of a info session on my campus, my first semester at Berkeley. You know, I use the platform all the time. I attended it, got a great, you know, vibe from the presentations. We did like a little product management mini workshop in there. And, you know, throughout my time at Berkeley, I would connect with folks. I had, you know, connect with, I know a few people who, some of my friends who worked at LinkedIn, got more insight from them. You know, through MLT, I connected to other people who worked at LinkedIn and got their insight into the company. And I just always heard good things about the culture, about, you know, the work that's being done. I know that, you know, using the platform, I, I got tons of benefits through the platform. Just, I actually found my, the job, the product manager job on LinkedIn before, <laughs> right? So I was literally browsing LinkedIn for product manager jobs. And then I saw the, the PM position pop up and that's how I initially applied. And then even when I was at Berkeley, there's one interesting, something interesting that happened is that I was working on a project trying to find out someone who did pricing in with BART. So BART, for those who don't know, it's the local train that goes up and down the, around the Bay Area. And I literally just typed in a LinkedIn BART pricing like engineer, and I found somebody like <laughs> who actually ended up going, who went to Berkeley. So he responded like immediately. So the platform just enables so much for people in their professional space and the culture as well. It's been great to work with great people who are, you know, not only do we do you know amazing work, but we also you know have fun together. And it's uh, those are probably the reasons I joined the company. So just a couple of comments. And thank you for that, Joseph. Uh, Shirley Artiga, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing your last name right, says, yes, joining MLT was the best decision I ever made. Much love for our cohort fam, MLT MBA Prep 17, 2017, with a heart symbol. And Kendra Crook put a, a hashtag MLT proud. So uh, get, already, get, already getting some love in this, this early morning discussion today. <laughs> so, you know, when I think about product management and just doing a little homework before the discussion today, when you look at the top universities in the world, like Columbia's, the Harvard's, those types of universities, traditionally, you'd see the majority of candidates coming out and going into these traditional roles like management consulting and investment banking. Mm-hmm. But just, I believe last year, 7% of the graduating body from these universities went into product management. Mm-hmm. And then when you look at the trends for the most winningest or the largest growth across these different career trajectories out of these universities, product management has grown twofold against the more traditional management consulting and investment banking. What do you think is pulling folks to this career trajectory? So I think for me, at least, I think it's just that the role enables you to just be, to have so much, have a say or have exposure to so many things within the product development process. So, you know, tech is, you know, I wouldn't say the new thing, but a lot of people want to get into tech in general, right? So it's within tech, Mm -hmm. how can you you know, work on the coolest features? How can you have the most impact? And I feel like within that PM role, you you get to have that impact where you're coming up with features that people are actually using, right? So that in mm-hmm. itself is, you know, fulfilling where, hey, I'm creating things that, and then features and products that help improve someone's life. So I think that one, just it being the tech space, and then two, you, you, as a PM, you're able to create 
and work with engineers, designers, marketing, data science to really have a holistic picture of how what you're developing affects the ecosystem. So I think all of that just really makes it an enticing role for people to want to join. And I think if you, there are very few PMs that you meet, I feel like that would say, I hate, you know, I don't, I hate my job, right? Because yeah. I, I mean, I, I come from an engineering background and it just, I've always been like a tinker and you know, creating things and building things. I remember when I was like a, a child, we had a lamp that wasn't functioning and I literally like took it apart and I put it back together and fixed it, right? So I think if you're in that mind space where you like to build things and just uh, improve know how people interact with technology the pm role is ideal so i think that's what's causing people to you know kind of join that space as opposed to going on the finance space and what would be deemed more traditional so it's like this multivariate use of all these different types of like thinking exactly processes like Got it. Got it. I, I never heard it framed that way. And the impact you can have. I mean, it is pretty cool to say, hey, I, the, that feature you're using, yeah, I, you know, I worked with you know, folks on my team and we all put it together. So that's also like a cool thing to say, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we got to get into this and I was, I was waiting to drop it after we got warmed up a little bit on the discussion. So coming to LinkedIn, you've been in LinkedIn for a little while, but one of the first products that you worked at, at LinkedIn, made it into the Wall Street Journal love for you to talk about <laughs> this product because I, I used it before this call today just to make sure I could pronounce your last name correctly and it works really well. So please, let's talk about this. Yeah, so that was a very surprising um, so article when I, when they were like, oh, we want to put it in the Wall Street Journal. I was like, I thought it was going to be in the in the bottom or the back of the website somewhere where you had to dig for it. <laughs> and I saw it on the, the homepage of the tech page specifically. And then I was like, oh my God, this is, this is amazing. But yeah, in general, the feature is something that we've been thinking about for some time. And so I'd been on the backlog of features to develop. I joined the team and I remember going to my manager and saying, hey, I really want to work on something that's you know impactful, that's going to you know be important for the company to kind of view it as a, well, I wanted a, a way to show that, hey, I can do this job, right? And also to prove to myself I can do it and to prove to the team and the company that I can do it. And you know, in the couple months I was there, I built up enough trust with him to, he said, yeah, here, take this <laughs> and go with it and run with it. And I was, had a team there to support the development of it. And it was a lot of up and down, you know, throughout the development of the product. I know it seems, use it, you know, you record your name, you save it. There's a lot more that goes on in the background and what we had to do to actually enable that experience. So overall, yeah, it's a, it was a, a great experience, learned a ton quickly. So, you know, I kind of put myself in a situation where I would have to learn quickly. And I was able to, you know, with the support of my team of, you know, the, ex the experts we have on at LinkedIn, you know, from the engineer, security design, et cetera, a lot of that had to go into it to, to release it. And it was a, overall a great opportunity. And I'm glad that everyone has enjoyed the feature. And the best thing about that is probably how much it's really enabled people to bring their full selves to the platform. And that's something that, you know, we're really working on is really making sure that, you know, your professional life isn't just, you know, what you do at work, your, your personal, your culture, all that affects how you bring yourself to work. So I've gotten responses and people saying, you know, now I'm going to use my full name, right? Because now you have no excuse <laughs> with respect to not being able to pronounce my name now. Right. So that's something that's probably been the most fulfilling aspect of that feature specifically is enabling people to embrace who they are, you know, the cultures they come from. Your name is the first thing that people refer to you as. It's the, it's, it's really who it represents who you are, where you came from. I know my first name is Joseph. I have a, my middle name is uh, Nigeria. So it's knowing that and knowing the connection that people have to their names and being able to bring their full self to the platform has been pretty cool. I couldn't agree with that more. And I had one of my professors at School of Business at UT Austin during my MBA program, Professor John Doggett. He would always say, and he, when folks would stumble, with folks, international students would come in and they would stumble talking and it would be, you know, it'd be hard to watch someone struggle with the English language. He would stop them and he would ask them to just say what they're going to say in their own native language. Mm -hmm. And it would just completely change the judgment and the way that we felt and the comfortability in the room, the warmth in the room. And another thing that he said, he's like, the, the most beautiful sound 
in the world to each person in any language is the sound of their name being pronunciated the right way. So those were some takeaways I remembered when just looking at the things that you were doing. So you you mentioned you had a Nigerian background Mm -hmm. and when we first talked and now we're kind of peeling back the layers of the things you're interested in, in terms of the, the product features. And when you think about product management for inclusive product management, you think about products and how other cultures are developing products and adopting products. How do those things interweave with each other? So when I think about like product management and, and, and creating for inclusive products, it's you know having that background, having a Nigerian background, really enabled me to. My parents, for I'm first generation, first U.S. born, uh, first generation U.S. born, and my parents and basically all my other family is born in Nigeria. And being having the two cultures kind of clash at times, I kind of let me see at a young age how disconnected, you know, different cultures could be. So when you think about product development, it's really my job to really ensure that we're able to connect, create one tool that can essentially connect various cultures and ensure that they're able to use that tool just as, as, as well as if it were developed by people in that country, you know, for people in that country or in that culture, even within a country, there are different cultures within a country. So that's how my background has really helped me in that sense. And, and when you think about just developing for different cultures, it's important to make sure that we're able to bridge that disconnect because there's a lot, there've been a lot of gaffes in product management <laughs> and then the tool and then product development that we've seen, whether it's like, you know, Snapchat had like a Bob Marley filter where it would darken your skin <laughs> and um, just not a, not the best idea there. And even recently they have a Juneteenth chain breaking like you smile and it breaks a, a chain breaks, which is again not the most culturally sensitive feature you could think of. But and also you have yeah, you know, yeah. facial recognition with respect to skin color and all that. So it's really important to make sure that we're able, when you're thinking about you know development that you're able to really deep dive into the cultures you expect to interact with your product and ensure that they're able to interact with it in a way that feels natural to them, whether it's through the simply not just the language, the translation, but the actual how you present the data, how they consume that data, you know, the tools they're using, are they, are they on desktop, mobile, what's more important to them? Are they more on the go? It's really understanding the context behind how they're using the tool and not just translating language. So what do you think, and Kendra Crook, she, she gave us a couple of comments here. So uh, she said, many MLT fellows say product management will establish protocols to ensure that applicable products have a focus on underrepresented communities, mm-hmm. taking into account costs and accessibility. So some some comments around why folks are, are focused on product management. And then name pronunciation for Kendra is one of her biggest worries as a coach. I think it's a worry for everyone, mm-hmm. especially you would think that the person that is getting their name completely chopped to pieces is feeling bad, but the person that's doing it, I mean, that's like, that's one of the the most disgraceful things I think that you can do is just completely ruin the pronunciation of someone's name. So mm-hmm. thanks for those, those comments, Kendra. So I'm just imagining this chain breaking and you're like, you're painting these visuals of some of these features and these products, Joseph, that just weren't executed well, or maybe weren't, weren't thought deeply enough. Like, how do you do that? How does a business or an organization or these teams build empathy and understand a deeper narrative and start to really figure out what these stories are? Like, is there a process? Is there teaming a way of sharing information? Like, how is that even accomplished? I think the easiest or more straightforward way is just to make sure the team developing that feature is diverse. Make sure you have diverse folks in different decision-making capacities on your team, which really just makes it more straightforward where if we have people from different parts of the country, different parts of the world who have varied backgrounds, who are great at their job, then you automatically get that diverse perspective. So you don't have this group think that occurs when people who came up in that same community, same background are thinking the same way. So I think that's the first step. And it's, you know, I've seen it firsthand, like even, you know, I've had the the pleasure of working on, on some products here at LinkedIn with diverse teams. And I've seen there's some areas where I'm not an expert in, and, I'm, and it's clear that I'm not an expert in it, but we have people on the team who can step up and say, yeah, I'm part of this community. 
this is not the best way to go, or this is yeah. something you need to think of when interacting and creating features for people in, in a certain demographic. And just having that and, and also having people who recognize they don't know everything, right, is another way to ensure that, you know, gaps like that don't happen. And so just making sure the team is diverse. And if you don't have a diverse team, you know, ensuring you're contacting people to get that diverse perspective, that you're doing the research, doing the groundwork and not, I know in the product space, we, we always want to build fast. It's like, you know, we need to get something out quickly. Whereas when you're developing for diverse cultures, you sometimes you may want to slow down so that you don't make these mistakes and actually ensure you're getting the right input to develop that experience for the people that will be using it. I really like that you're mentioning like the pace of innovation and how like that can change, that pace can change kind of the thoughtfulness of some of the things that are coming out of these organizations. I really like how you mentioned trying to find like diversity and diversity is a big word. It's like it's used quite often, but it's hard to really understand what folks mean by it. But you're saying there's different communities that you can reach out to, to figure out if what you're building or what you're innovating thinking about is the right thing to do. And I think that that could be hard for some communities, some organizations, maybe maybe not so hard for others. Mm. One of the things that this made me think about, and I was just looking for some trends to cross-reference on our discussion, and I came up with this nice article and I put it into the event space for folks to check out if they'd like. But it's the top trends for product management for 2021. And I thought this was going to be a really boring read, you know, technology oriented. Maybe it's going to talk about, you know, Python and all these emerging codes or technologies. But it was interesting because it obviously kept the pandemic in mind and it talked about kind of five areas. And I'd love to like read these off quickly and maybe ask you what you think about some of these. One, distributed product teams will be the new normal. So hybrid work model, you know, I think our first call, you were out of the state. Now you're back in the state, you're probably working in both areas. People are able to do more work, obviously, at home or now go into an office if that's kind of what their local jurisdiction will let them do. But that lets you hire better talent because now you can really get these, you access these talent pools that you weren't able to, to access just from your local area. You know, product leaders will become more effective just because now we're faced with so many emotional and compassion rooted types of challenges on a day-to-day -day that we're kind of building this ability to solve more like emotionally condition-based problems. Chaotic times will force product managers to just focus on what really matters because there's so much going on. It's very easy to get kind of just to lose focus. So apparently 2021 folks are going to get a lot more focused on the technology they're developing. Mm -hmm. Diversity awareness and action will increase just because of the things that happened last year, the things that are going on now in DC. And then finally, this change in how folks are buying things, obviously the targets of the world, the Walmarts, the Amazon, every single company out there is rethinking their strategies and it's forcing them to unravel what they've built and to think differently. What do you think this year has in store for changes? Or And that could even be things that you're seeing around you today. So I think the so with respect to like the distributed teams, that's going to be huge. I mean, I think, I don't think we're going back to a place where everyone has to be in the office. Um, I think it's, it's companies, as you mentioned, are going to be flexible because people can get work done from wherever, you know, you might as well let them be the most comfortable that they can be in their in environment outside of work. Because, you know, I, like for instance, California, a lot of people move to California for work and after, you know, after the pandemic hit and, you know, those who were fortunate enough to, you know, still be able to work remotely and they realized that hey, I don't actually have to be here. I can go closer to my family, to where I was raised, to, you know, be in a more comfortable environment and still be productive at work where I get both the best of both worlds, where I get my personal life to where I want it to be. And then I get my professional life where I want it to be. So I feel like that's going to be big in terms of just the trend of continuing this distributed teams and working from home. And I feel like companies realize that people can still be productive and not be in the office. I mean, there is that human interaction that's, that's great in terms of really, you know, building that camaraderie, you know, physically seeing someone, right, and interacting with them. And then I think that, you know, while that is important as well, there are, you know, situations in which, you know, hey, maybe I can just fly back once a quarter and meet with a team as opposed to, you know, having to live in an area where you may not necessarily want to be. So I feel like distributed teams is going to 
be huge because you've seen there's a huge migration of folks out of California after the pandemic hit. Yeah. Just shown like that, you know, they're here for work and that was basically it. And now they can be where they want to be and people living abroad, people just literally back just traveling from city to city and still being able to work. So I think that's going to you know be huge. And also it seems as if on the diversity front, like Apple just announced that they're having like a diversity program in Detroit targeting, you know, racial disparity in tech. Google, like last year, announced something similar with HBCUs and connecting with them. It seems as if on the diversity front, companies are now also being more flexible and intentional about reaching out to communities where that don't necessarily have the access to Silicon Valley that we would hope they would have. So on that front, I feel like it's taken a long time, but these tech companies are being more intentional about knowing that, hey, just because I didn't go to Stanford doesn't mean I'm not good at, I can't be a good engineer. I can't be a good designer, right? There are people who go to HBCUs, people go to schools that, like I went to University of Florida, right? And the tons of people who I know I went to school with, who I know to this, they could be just as good, if not better than some of the folks who you know work at these top tech companies. So just being more intentional about reaching out to diverse communities. I think that seems to be something that tech companies are doing more of and being more intentional about it. So it's great to see. It's heartening to see that companies are recognizing that I can still get top talent and not have to go to the same schools that I'm recruiting from and not have the mentality and thinking that if you didn't go to one of these top schools, you're not going to be good because a lot of the times has to do with either resources, whether, you know, you have to take care of someone and you can't leave. You can't, I kid, I can't leave, you know, Florida because I, you know, this is my, this is where all my family is or, or I don't have the resources to go to to pay full price to go to a Harvard or if I don't, if I didn't get a scholarship, right. Or a Stanford or even a Berkeley. Right. So it seems as if there's a, an aha moment, an epiphany that's just kind of popped up in tech and in tech space where we can, it's okay to not to reach out to where people are and not have this mentality where we're just, we're just going to, we we get so many candidates that we're just going to let them come to us. But then you realize that that's how you don't have diversity when People aren't even thinking about working at Google because they haven't been exposed to it because they grew up in the South or grew up in the Midwest or grew up in an area where they haven't been exposed to tech. So being just, you know, having programs that directly create this pipeline to diverse talent is something that I'm hoping continues and I'm hoping that more companies latch onto it. Yeah, me too, Joseph. And the thing is, and I, I think I felt a lot of this too, it, before we go there, I wish I was in California for work. I'm actually, because that means I could just leave. I'm actually in California for, for sun and sand, which means I can't leave. Uh, so I got, so I got, I got to pay the piper. Um, but it, it seems like it's, it's very, it's expensive. Diversity is expensive. It's very easy to just take the cream that rises easiest to the top. That's very cheap. It's very easy. But it's expensive to find outliers. It's expensive to build models that are extremely they're accurate and that they can represent an outcome using larger data sets. So I, I interviewed the head of operations at Correlation One, and it's an organization that essentially finds the best data talent in the world for hedge funds and for large organizations that need really smart people. And a lot of the themes that they talk about is, you know, instead of going to the, the Harvards and the Stanfords, et cetera, and kind of taking the top folks from the top of the bell curve in terms of performance and intellectual performance and hiring them, what you're doing is you're missing out on that very, 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 very top elite, high performer type of individual that may be at a top 100 university. And if you're able to kind of find all those different locations of people of talent and grab all that top talent, those different locations, not only is it diverse, but you're getting top talent. You're getting better talent than just kind of taking that easy cream from those top 10 universities. And I feel a lot more of that happening in the technology space. I'm not sure what it looks like in the rest of the business space. But just looking at your experience profile, Georgia Tech, Haas, you know, Lyft, Ford Motor Company, NVIDIA, Intel, all these different organizations. Can you just walk us through maybe a couple things that you learned from each or some takeaways if you could think back around you know, what you were experiencing throughout those different career times in your life? Was, I guess before I kind of go through that, I wanted to comment on uh, like the, you know, you mentioned it was kind of expensive to kind of redo how these systems have been done in the first place in terms of recruiting. Um, mm-hmm. So when I think of mm-hmm. 
like these, they put a lot of time into creating the way the system is now into making and, and, and then yeah. it be so myopic in terms of who they go to and who and where they're recruiting and what, what they deem as, you know, qualified talent. So it was done incorrectly, right? In the first place. So I think, yeah, yeah, yes, it's going to be, yeah. ex it's expensive to re-engineer it, but it was, when it was done incorrectly in the first place, we should view it as a, okay, clean break, let's do it the right way, right? Yes, yes. So just, I just wanted to comment on that. But in terms of just my experience, and the question was essentially how it's like shaped me and how, like how I've come about the opportunities. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to, you know, have, you know, support and be exposed to, you know, a lot of these different opportunities, um, you know, going to UF, I learned, you know, about, I was part of NSBE, National Society of Black Engineers. And in that program, they uh, spoke a lot about, you know, getting a graduate degree and the opportunities available to not only get one, but then to get it supported and paid for by corporations. So found out about, you know, uh, the GM Consortium through that, was able to go to Georgia Tech. Intel was a company that actually recruited at UF, was exposed to the business side of tech in that through a recruiter that actually came to UF. And that enabled me to kind of actually have a connection to the West Coast. I was like my first time really thinking about California ever. So I was fortunate enough to have that, you know, one experience and yeah, moved out to the, the Bay and, you know, through here, I've had a lot of opportunities to, you know, bounce around different tech companies where I was at Intel for a while. And then one of my friends who was also an MLT uh, alum, his name's Sydney, he told me about, you know, I was thinking about my next career move and I wanted to pivot into something different than what I was doing. Yeah, I was exposed to product management. I had a ton of conversations with him saying, hey, how do I, you know, what's the best route for me to get here? He told me about, you know, MLT and the MBA process. I was exposed to MLT in that sense, just from a, a friend and, you know, went that route got went to Berkeley, got it, and th even through Berkeley, one of the reasons I even had the opportunity at Lyft was through a classmate. So a classmate knew, had a connection with the recruiter. I connected with him it's, and he connected me with the recruiter, was able to, you know, get that opportunity to, you know, work at Lyft. And then just, you know, being able to work at Ford, that was an amazing experience. You know, Berkeley had an opportunity to do some consulting with, you know, international businesses. And for me, international, you know, product development is, is, is big for me. It's something that I'm really passionate about. So definitely wanted to jump on that opportunity and, you know, have the chance to go to China and, and live there and interact with the people. Literally, it was more transportation space. So me and my teammates went and we were Chinese citizens for the entire time, really taking in the mobility experience, how people get around on bikes, on scooters, uh, public transportation, taking cabs, and just really using that to hone our, you know, our final decision that we presented. So I've been fortunate enough to like have that. There's always been someone who's had been a connection to some other, to a future step that was available to me that I could take to improve my experience, improve myself professionally and personally. So that's kind of been my journey. I know it's kind of long, but that's been my journey so far. It's important because, you know, when you talk about this essence of taking in the experience, when you talk about your China experience, and I know the crux of this conversation was about how do you position and how do you help understand how these different international communities and cultures, what is their relationship with technology? So some of the things I'm hearing from you is you believe in building narrative and understanding the story and kind of living in that, that lived experience of the user. In the context of that, you know, and I think Satya Nadella mentioned several years ago, you know, every business will become a software business. Mark Andressen had an article, 2011, Why Software is Eating the World. So current state, you have all these organizations who are either trying to get into the product space or they're already in it. Obviously, the, the tech companies are already in it. But for these organizations are trying to get into the product space and there's all these different international communities, Joseph, like what are you seeing that's working? What kind of processes are like from your lens, like what are companies doing well that are trying to become product companies and what aren't they doing well? In terms of just the understanding the international audiences specifically? Yeah, I think understanding internet, building products that'll be, that, that'll be successful for international audiences or whatever audience as they kind of move from this monolithic, maybe a hardware type company or a company that has nothing to do with technology into the technology space? Well, I think it's a large part of just understanding how connected 
everyone is and understanding your market is not just where you couldn't is not limited to where you're developing so for in the u.s understanding hey there are users in china in india in latin america in europe that can actually use this product it's how do we ensure that when we're building it that it actually resonates with that market it's really i feel like you know as we've developed as a global economy we've realized that your product is it's really like you don't want to limit your your market, right? It's really ensuring how can I use this, whatever I'm building to really connect folks. And depending on your mission, if your mission is to connect individuals and ensure that folks are able to achieve whatever goal they want to achieve, whether that's within their country or cross border, it's understanding that you have to really deep dive into various cultures and how they how products resonate with them. How do they interact with technology? How do they interact with each other outside of technology to really deep dive into that, to understand the best way to build your product, to ensure that it gets adopted worldwide. So in general, it's really just understanding how connected everyone is and how connected the globe is and how the U.S. is it. Depending on your product, you could have better adoption outside the U.S. than in the U.S. So it's really making sure that you're able to kind of break out of your bubble to see the global impact your product could have, and then actually taking the time to do that research to see if that's an opportunity you can take to ensure your product gets adopted globally. But a big part of it is a big part of it's really, really just deep diving into the different cultures and understanding exactly how your product can be successful in that economy. And that's the essence I'm getting, Joseph, from just talking to you and getting to know you. Your ethos just seems very welcoming and calm and analytical and you're you're looking at things and you, you just taking these from your own words you know taking in these experiences and really understanding what some of these users are focused on and i can see why one of your passion areas is is building technology for international cultures one of the things i wanted to talk about was i read this article it just actually just came out in the economist and it was when you're thinking about how Americans, just for an example, when we think about technology, we think about really good technology. First thing that comes to mind is Silicon Valley. And no offense to any of the folks that we work for, but first thing that comes to mind is Silicon Valley. But China, for instance, has one of the largest retail bases in the world in terms of consumers. And they have these emerging, you know, this omni-channel idea. So that, you know, you have like a WeChat where you can buy things, you can communicate with people, you can do all these different things in the space of a specific technology capability, or you have this emerging, you know, social commerce. So you have, you know, digital coupons that are being offered up to consumers to entice them to come into the physical space, but you're meeting them in the digital space, or you have influencers that are in real time doing live streams about product. And if you watch the product live stream, then you can comment on it. You can make a review, you get a 10% discount. You can then share that with friends. It's this completely different way of engaging with the user. And it's very hard to see that if I didn't read this article, I would think, you know, yeah, Silicon Valley, we're putting the best user experiences out there in the world. It's very hard to see what the rest of the world is doing. Given your interests, do you see technology companies or organizations, you see teams looking outward into the international community? To kind of get looking over to essentially get ideas on how we could improve. Yeah, like it, it seems just so siloed. Yeah. But do you see us looking like there's a reason that you're concentrating kind of in in this passion area? Like, how do you get folks to think more like you in terms of hey, let's be more inclusive, let's capture more of this multi-constituent world? Yeah, it's that's something I've kind of caught on as well because I and being in China and seeing the technology there and had a chance to go to different, you know, technology development companies and seeing it's, it, they seem so far ahead of us in terms of how they're yeah, adopting yeah. technology, especially in that payment space, in that finance space where you can use your phone for everything. And it's just, everybody uses it. It's just so convenient. I remember yeah. traveling yeah. to the UK. So many of my friends would go to the Olympics so since we've gotten jobs and they can actually spend money. Um, we've traveled to the Olympics all the time. <laughs> we went to London for the Olympics in 2012. And I remember seeing the chip cards. And this was like 2012. This is, And I'm sure they've already had it for a while before then. And then I go to the US and we're still swiping. And I learned, you know, researching this, oh, why are we so behind in terms of how we adopt technology in the US? And Going to China, I noticed that as well. Like it just, every time I travel and I go to a different place and it, especially areas where they do tend to adopt technology quickly, it seems as if the US is actually behind in a lot of senses. And I think that just comes from yeah. a 
cultural space. It's like how do you, they're more open to these newer ways of interacting with folks in, in the U.S. But they also have the, the benefit of like having a more coordinated effort in terms of how things get adopted, who, who's making decisions and companies working together. Where in the U.S., it seems as if there's a lot of silos within the country with respect to making sure that everyone is on the same page. That doesn't really happen. And, you know, in the U.S. with 50 states and different governments and different technology infrastructures. So I think in that sense, it makes it more difficult. But yes, I have noticed that, as you mentioned, other countries seem to be ahead of us in terms of the adoption and space of certain technologies, especially in like the finance space and, finance and fintech. But yeah, I think that's just... I'm hoping it's it's been something that's encouraged, you know, you know, tech companies now to really see how we can push forward, ensure that we're developing and adopting technology just as well as and just as quickly as these other cultures that that we've spoken about. And I think it's something that companies have done. I mean, working for other companies, you've seen this strategy of, oh, we'll develop our product and we'll just push it to different cultures and deal with it and and just, you know, tweak it as we go by, as opposed to really having a strategy for going into these companies and seeing, okay, uh, these cultures and seeing, okay, how do we actually, if we were to build this from the ground up, how would this look? And I feel like nowadays companies are being more cognizant of reaching out, understanding how other cultures are, are using and adopting technology to then incorporate that into their product development to then make the product they're developing more global and at the same time, hopefully increase getting ideas on how other cultures are adopting things and incorporating those ideas in the US or wherever that product is being developed. That's really well spoken. And just this quick kind of funny, you mentioned going to the Olympics and having a jog being able to afford to go to the Olympics. The average salary for a product manager is $113,000 according to Glassdoor. So apparently product managers can afford to go to the Olympics and, <laughs> and engage in those types yeah. of activities. Uh, so another reason that the, the field is pulling so many really great, talented folks to it. So we're, we're closing off the last bit of our discussion. You know, What's next for you, not in terms of obviously where you're working and what you're working on, but what are the spaces that you're continuing to be interested in and some things that you'd like to start to work on, if you could? Well, so a lot of what I'm doing now is on the, okay, I would say just giving back, just making sure I'm more into providing insight for others in terms of how they can bring in the tech. Like I recently started a blog um, the P0 PM to really, because when I was trying to get into product management, it was like a black box to me. So really ensuring that I'm able to help those who want to get into tech, that they're able to understand more about the role, specifically the product management role. So that's one thing I'm really trying to focus on is really when honing my craft to be able to, at a bigger scale, provide insight to folks. So as they go to the site, they can just really understand what the role is, how they can break into it, what to expect when they get in there. And outside of just like the giving back with that, it's just mainly just trying to learn more about just the global economy, different macroeconomics is actually one of my favorite classes in business school randomly because it enabled me to really understand how we interact with other cultures with respect to finance, with respect to economics, and the value of the dollar and how all that changes and how the transport of goods, how that affects different cultures and the economies and the, the value of the every culture's dollar or every culture's currency. I'm um, just being more, just reading, I try to read as much as I can about different areas outside of tech and seeing how I can incorporate that into my role in tech. I'm reading books on just from social justice, the economics. I finished reading a book called Boomerang by Michael Lewis talks about the financial crisis and but from the perspective of different countries so it's a fascinating book just seeing how i know we know about the us and the housing crisis but just seeing how other countries played into this crisis as well was pretty fascinating so yeah, the two things i'm doing really just to ensuring i'm giving back through my you know p0pm website and just absorbing as much as i can about topics outside of tech and topics outside of tech, but then also global topics and how these various topics have been affected by different cultures or the context of these topics like finance within different cultures to just improve myself as a human being. And then uh, utilizing yeah. that in the insight I'm getting in my role as a PM in tech. 
you described what, and I, his name escapes me, the chief storyteller officer at Microsoft. And he's got a, you know, a team of 45 people or, or so, and they develop stories and visuals and these types of things to help communicate our mission and our value and values and philosophies at Microsoft. And one of the things he said that he did, if you want to become a better storyteller, and this is in the vein that you're talking through, just read a lot and read everything. Try to put your eyes on different types of, of educational models and different perspectives and experiences, you know, whether it be, you know, fiction or nonfiction or The Economist or Wall Street Journal, just, just read everything and take a little bit in because it helps you understand a vastly more broad idea of what the world is all about. So I appreciate you kind of sharing that with us. And I will definitely put the link to your website, not only in the show notes of this podcast, once it goes out to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, mm -hmm. et cetera, but also put it into the event space and share, because I think that's an important artifact. How can folks get a hold of you if they'd like to learn more about you and follow you, et cetera? Yeah, just uh, on my LinkedIn, you can find me just Joseph Acconi. <laughs> I'm the only one, I'm pretty sure. Um, um, but yeah, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. All right. So last question, is, I asked this question of all my guests. If you had seven days to accomplish anything, you had unlimited resources, but you only seven days to actually deploy and execute against it, what would you approach? What would you focus on? What would you try to do? Seven, and it could be anything? Anything. I'd learn how to play the piano. That sounds random, but I've always wanted to learn how to play piano, like play an instrument. I, I played the recorder in elementary school and that was it. I love music. So that's why I figured <laughs> that's something I would like in retirement, I'm going, or even I, I can probably pick it up now if I, if I want to, but if I had like <laughs> yeah. a, a significant amount of time or seven days or even any amount of time to just devote to one thing, I would play the piano or pick it up, try to at least. I know it's, it's random, but... <laughs> No, that's awesome. That's yeah. a great answer. Well, Joseph, it's been just an absolute pleasure to get to know you and to have this conversation in a live ecosystem here on LinkedIn. I think it's a really special conversation that we had and hopefully it, it hits the mark with folks that are looking to get into product management or even organizations that are trying to understand, you know, how do we reach into these different global communities and really think differently about the way that we're organizing our thoughts around product development, product management and technology innovation. So for folks that would like to listen to the actual recording, you can go ahead and follow and subscribe to the Data Vintage Podcast and your favorite place to stream podcasts. And with that, Joseph, thanks for joining and folks, thanks for watching. All right, thank you. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today and having some fun with us on the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow me on LinkedIn or at DRUSS Network, D-R-U-S-S Network on Twitter or Instagram. And you can also reach out to me anytime via email at Derek at thedatabinge.com. The Data Binge podcast is a personal thought form where we share knowledge and ideas. Views and opinions expressed here do not reflect those of my employer, Microsoft. I really hope you enjoyed. Thanks a lot.